and welcome to Mount Bites, episode 86. I'm Elaine Giles. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Thomas. In this episode, breaking it, building it back up and black holes. But first, we heard from Jane, who said, another great show. So pleased to hear the news of the upcoming Busy Contacts app from those fab Busy Mac guys. The ridiculous convoluted efforts that you have to go to at the moment to sync Apple's contacts with another iCloud user will become a distant memory, I hope. Looking forward to tomorrow's MacBytes show. How often can I say that? Cheers, Jane. Not often, luckily. Are you fading yet? No. No, I'm feeling, feeling alarmingly good myself. Ah, yes, we also heard from Jenna. Maybe this is the answer every day. No, we mustn't, we mustn't tease Minster. Yes, Jenna. She shamefully admitted to being delinquent. But I think she's just being clever and stockpiling episodes for any potential MacBytes famine that might arise. She did promise to pull an all-nighter to catch up after I said that we wouldn't do any more for six months if she stayed delinquent. <laughs> you see, it was the six months that did it. And uh, Graham said he managed to turn his TV on for the first time in six days. Who needs TV with MacBytes 7 in full swing, I say? Yes, I know how you feel, Graham. I haven't done it either. We haven't got a TV. Well, I've got my ITV. It's the same rubbish, no matter how big the TV is. Well, I haven't haven't seen the game from the weekend yet. Did you win? Yeah. Oh, oh, well, you will want to watch that one then. Yeah. Anyway, Graham also agreed with Nick about MoneyWiz. He said he's been using it since last April on two Macs, an iPad and an iPod Touch. Very pretty with its own syncing service. And it seems to work fine. It seems to be for domestic use rather than business. But uh, he is liking it. I now need to try this. Stopping spending money would be a start, wouldn't it? You know, so I've got some money to manage. Yes. It's easier to just give it Apple and let them look after it, I say. Very true. We also heard from Alistair, who was getting a bit hot under the collar, about male clients. Yes, he says male clients don't get me started. He's going to have a look at airmail, and he's also been meaning to check out MailPilot too. I think you've just missed the uh, early adopters price. But it doesn't actually get too good a reviews. I was quite surprised. But it's probably worth a look at. But he says, a prize to anyone who can find any Mac email client that knows how to thread emails properly. I had one written by a friend on my Acorn Archimedes in the early 90s. I remember those. Didn't have one, but I remember them. Uh, But the world of email clients seem to have regressed since then. Have to agree, really. Proper threading. Two emails with the same subject are not a thread or a conversation. I receive numerous emails and notification emails that fall into this silly trap. An email and its reply or forward, even if the subject line is changed, are a thread. On the subject of emails not being used as reminders themselves, perhaps it's not proper GTD, but I personally use exactly that method, and I've described why at the link I've given for this comment. So the link is in the show notes. So first of all, threading conversations. I must admit I found exactly the same, and that's why I don't like conversations or threads. How do you get on with them? I agree with you. I, Whenever possible, I turn conversations and threads off because it does just get confusing. One of the worst examples of that I've seen recently is uh, Yahoo Groups. I know they're still going, believe it or not. Uh, they've they updated them. You know, this big rebranding that Yahoo have had. Yeah. They've rebranded the groups. And what the groups gave you, as well as storage for images and stuff like that, was 
conversations. So not exactly IM or Twitter, but similar kind of thing. You know, everybody posts at the group. And then if you subscribe to email notifications, you get an email notification of the thing. And you can reply to that email and it will go back to the group. So you, you get the idea. Well, they turned on, they've never had it before, but they've turned on some kind of conversation thread thing to say it's a disaster, unmitigated disaster. It started pulling through, as Alistair says, just purely based on the subject line. And of course, the subject line in a group that's been going for a few years, you're probably going to get similar or, or identical subject lines over the years. And it started pulling things through from like 1998 in, into a new thread just because they are identical. So yeah, no... Didn't our old Mac group have a Yahoo group? Um, wasn't it a Google group? Was it a Google group? Anyway, whatever it was. But you, you could imagine it being something like, you know, how do I burn a DVD? Yeah, or new like, iMac. Yeah, yeah, from 1986 and 1990 and 2014. Exactly. So you would have to be very precise. But I mean, be honest, email subject lines, they're not unique identifiers and they shouldn't be used as such. No, I, I've not found one that works either. So that's why I've turned it off. I remember with Gmail, I just could not get the hang of that right, right back at the beginning when I first tried it. And I realised I was missing a lot of mails because it had slid them into a thread. And I thought I'd read that mail and the replies were going underneath this thread. Then they were splitting off because there was a forward in it or a reply in it. It was a complete and utter mess. So uh, if I find anything, I'll let you know. And if you find anything, let me know, Alistair. And then onto his proper GTD. Oh, he's using the item as a reminder. He is the old, the old milk carton trick, as you called it the, the uh, other day. I'd say go with what works. What works, works. If it works for you, great. Yeah, I have what I call a hybrid approach. And what I mean is uh, I will keep emails in my inbox as reminders. But then when my inbox gets a bit, um, not, not top heavy, but overbearing, I will actually go through and create t tasks in Outlook and then drag and drop the emails into the tasks. So at the moment, I think I've got about five, four or five emails in my inbox and about half a dozen tasks in my task list. Uh, and that's the way I work. Oh, I've got problems with all of that. Um, I find if I took Alistair's approach, my problem with, with it would be it would probably work, you know, if I had an, an average amount of email. My problem is the amount of email that I get in a day. I could easily get three to four hundred mails in a day. So if I leave stuff in there to remind me to do something, it's going to get lost or my perception is it's going to get lost. What I could do is maybe have, you know, like an all actions folder. Yeah. And if the mail is something that I want to be reminded of or it's got something to reference in it, I could put it in there. But I, I do tend to try and manage my inbox so there is nothing in there that would be a crisis if I lost the lot. I try and do that. Um, your approach would work in theory, and I'm sure I tried it. It was a disaster. Um, yeah, I was in Outlook on the PC and I did exactly what you said, which is exactly what you're supposed to do create a task so it's dedicated task and it has metadata according to it being a task so due date references and of course in outlook you should be able to drag and drop files and in your case emails into the task and i, I did that and it worked great for a week and then you know like the russian doll syndrome it got completely confused about the fact i dragged stuff inside another object and it lost the lot. 
So I decided at that point I wouldn't be using Outlook for notes or tasks or anything else either. I didn't even have my calendar stuff in it. I, I used a paper diary back then. It was very reliable. So um, no, I don't think your approach would work for me either. I will. We'll have to keep trying and come up with a better idea. We should design one between us, you know. We because should. we know what we want. <laughs> yes. We also heard from Nick. He's come up with some more great software gems. So we're going to be looking at those in one of the upcoming shows. Too good to be rushed, I thought, Nick. Thank you for sharing. It is always great to see how other people are using apps. And you've picked a couple of great ones there. Are you going to give us a clue? No, it's a secret. Just Nick and I know at the moment. Wait, you, wait your time. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. We also heard from Bob, who said um, an excellent piece on Office 365. The teeth, <laughs> especially for Minster. He thinks it's an excellent product, although he won't be getting it himself, and it's certainly a far better user interface than Office on the Surface. Now, we asked about Android, and one thing they've done is to make the old Office mobile app, mobile app, which does not require a subscription, free on Android phones, iPhones, and iPod Touch. And this can create and edit files as well as view them, but it's not suitable for, pla um, for platforms. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Yeah, you can tell I'm reading this, can't you? Mm. It's not suitable for tablets on either platform. Also, he says that Microsoft will be introducing a smaller license, one tablet and one computer for $70 a year rather than $100 a year. And there's a free trial at Microsoft's website. Now, after praising it, he says he won't be getting it because one, he prefers Scrivener as a word processor and was happy to hear you mention the up and upcoming iPad version. I love Scrivener. Can't Don't wait. We know. Can't wait. Two, his spreadsheets and presentation needs are minimal and anything will work for him. And three, he has 128 gig of free OneDrive space, so an extra 20 gig doesn't really matter. But he does think that for many, it's a far better option than buying Office and dealing with product keys and severely limited installs. And he also really likes Notepad, which is free on all platforms. By which you mean OneNote? What do I say? Notepad. <laughs> Did I? Yes. <laughs> Oh, when, when you listen to this, you'll realise what you said. But I, I got what you meant. It's 11 o'clock and it's the seventh show. Really? Yeah, mind you. I, the excuses I, are coming out. Yes, like like when I listened back the other day and I realised that I'd said thumbnail instead of whatever. What, what, what was it? Tap on a tab. No, there, well, there's tap on a tab, yes. There's something Let's not have there. a whole shopping list of all the disasters with the team. <laughs> Right, so let me go back to I what, what Bob was. was saying. The thumbnail support is a fingerprint support on the iPhone 5. Oh, yeah, that's coming soon, though. It's like the iTit. <laughs> It'll be with us before we know it. I'd better stop biting my nails, then. I need to know why Bob's got 128 gig of free OneDrive space. That's awesome. And, and you haven't. And I haven't. No, I haven't. I believe there was a 100 gig offer not long ago. And when I clicked on the link that I was sent and got very excited about, it was US only. You know how I love that. Mm. Uh, yes. Isn't it great when, when tw an extra 20 gig doesn't matter to you, Bob? That's fantastic. I adore OneNote. You're quite right. I'm in the middle of really, really testing OneNote. And, um, I adore Notepad. <laughs> yeah, well, you stick with your Notepad. <laughs> Good grief. Do you even mean an electronic one? I do worry about you at times. So uh, we, we will be revisiting OneNote very, very soon. And we also heard from Andy and Evie and Beth, all of whom have spent money 
They've all bought airmail and are loving it. Uh, must say today it got quite a large updated airmail and it's now got support for Markdown. Haven't actually tried it myself, but exciting because I write in Markdown, so it would be very sensible to be able to do that. So a uh, nice big update for airmail today. But let's move on with um, our main topic, which is stuff we've broken. And uh, by we, I do mean we. I think you broke some of this, didn't you? <laughs> Did I? Mm. I I'm not taking up sole responsibility. Used to me, but go on. It was something that I talked about quite a while back. It was um, an app that we were using and it broke and then, oh, it all unraveled. And I said I'd come up with a solution, but it wasn't quite there. And I got a few emails saying, talk about that solution. Tell, tell us how you fixed it. It sounded interesting. So I'll tell you what broke. It wasn't me that broke it. It was Apple. And uh, then I'll tell you how I fixed it. So my need was I wanted to be able to transfer files to another machine. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And I'd actually got... Uh, it's because it's when I'm working with you, to be honest. Because if I'm transferring machine uh, files between machines, usually there'll be huge files that I want to edit a video on a different machine. But when I'm working with you, I've got lots of little files. So the... I guess the main problem was the number of files we were trying to work with together. So my need was to transfer files to Mike, not just to another machine, but to Mike. And I found a perfect solution, which was DropCopy Pro. There's a DropCopy and there was DropCopy Pro. And it does one job and it does it very well. It transfer files to another machine. And how it does it is it puts an icon on the desktop. It looks like a black hole. Uh, I think that came in with one of the, you know, the Legolas wallpaper matched beautifully. You could barely see this black hole icon. Which so, is why in past episodes you've probably heard us referring to the black hole. Yes, yes, that's what it is. So this icon sits on the desktop and um, you drag and drop a file to it. And if you only have one other copy of Drop Copy Pro running on one other machine then instantly as you drop the file it appears on the desktop of the remote machine now if you've got more than one copy of drop copy pro running on more than one machine then it will give you a menu a menu pops up and you can choose which machine to send it to so that was what the job involved obviously there were alternatives to that because sadly it broke so um one of the alternatives we looked at was email, but it's a pain to manage. And if the files were bigger, we'd have had a problem. Second thing we looked at was a shared folder. Three problems with that, really. One, you would have to manually connect to a shared folder. So it would either be on my machine or Mike's machine and you'd have to connect to it. Second problem with that was it wasn't always available. So if the other machine's turned off, you have nowhere to put this file. You'd need a holding area in order to transfer it. And the third problem was there would be limited remote access if you were out. Now, Drop Copy Pro was perfect because it was really simple. There was only this icon as an interface. There wasn't, I mean, you could get to the preferences of the app, but there was nothing else that bobbed up and got in the way. So it was elegant, simple, really quick. You didn't need to make a manual connection. It connected automatically because the app ran when you rebooted your machine, did the same on the remote machine, and as long as that machine was available, it was just connected. Uh, like I said, it could handle more than one destination, but it was a lot faster with just the one. Because it was an app, it was hooked up to uh, Growl and it gave you notifications of an incoming file. One thing that was a slight issue was that it did dump everything on the desktop of a rem the remote machine didn't it 
Yeah. But I think you could specify another location. But to be honest, in terms of what these files were that I was transferring to Mike, so it might be just something that I send to him and say, is that okay? Check that for me. They were only small files anyway. And you, and it was it's probably better that they're on the desktop. You just open it, check it, and then delete it. I'll tell you what, um, you know how you get used to, to doing something. I've, I've kept banging on the last few episodes about muscle memory because I just got used to picking up a file and dragging and dropping it to the black hole to send it to you. I, I had in the back of my mind that I could do that at work as well. Might that so work if, well? Yeah, so if my boss said, can you send me that Excel file, I would just try and drag it and look for the black hole on my Vista machine and it wasn't there. Your black hole on a Vista machine is you've lost the file. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was working. And to be honest, I think we were quite happy with it, weren't we? We were. The biggest problem was complete disaster. It stopped working. I think it was when we updated to either Lion or Mountain Lion. One or other of them broke it. It did eventually start working again, but it was too late by then. Yeah, I think it was around 2011. By the time they'd fixed it, as I say, it was too late. I'd MacGyvered a fabulous alternative that I was actually happier with. And um, the first thing to note is that this solution involves another app called DropZone. And just an aside about DropZone, it could be used as an alternative to Courier. I talked about Courier a couple of episodes ago, which allowed me to upload files to YouTube. And I said it also did other stuff. It would upload images to TwitPick and all that kind of thing. The one where you had envelopes and you stuck stamps on it. Is it all coming back to you? It's coming back to me, but good, I, I good. remember it. So um, the drop zone is, is the recommended alternative for that. I don't find it um, as powerful as Courier, but Courier is pining for the fields. So my MacGyvered solution. Uh, it's quite long, but bear with me. There's about eight steps to it. But um, what I did was not only replace what I had, but I, I took the time to work out what was needed precisely. So um, we call that 7100, don't we? We do. I better explain what that you is. Better have. It won't make any sense at all. Many moons ago, Microsoft used to have um, a range of exams. I did all the systems engineer ones, and Mike was interested in the development ones. And uh, the bane of his life was an exam, the number of which was seventy one hundred, and it was known as analysing requirements. I think wasn't it? That's the one. The official title, analysing requirements, and what they did was give you sort of. 50 pages of requirements and then tell you to analyse them and come up with a solution. So Mike hated this thing. And um, that was what I did. I settled down to analyse the requirements. So I looked at you know basic transfers. What, what did I actually need? And I came up with, I needed to transfer files, usually one by one, to a specific location. I would have liked it to be transferred with something like a hotspot. So like the black hole icon that I already had on my desktop. So something like that, rather than having to open a finder window. So something instant and obvious. By this stage, I'd got used to the growl notifications. So with notifications... And it also needed to be bi-directional because it wasn't just me sending Mike files. He needed to be able to send files to me. But we didn't want them where all the files ended up in the same folder. There was really going to be his inbox and my inbox. So there was that requirement as well. Once I'd worked out those requirements, I then started getting ambitious. And I thought, what's wrong with this, with this solution that we already had? And one of the big limitations was there was no offline use of it. So if Mike, strange, strange boy, turned his machine off, as you tend to do, don't you, every now and then? 
Every now and then. Very strange. Then I had no access. I couldn't drag and drop to uh, the black hole on my desktop. It wouldn't go anywhere. So uh, offline use would have been nice. And then even more ambitious, I thought it'd be great if this would work remotely. So if we needed to work mobile, a mobile solution of it or remote access to it. Um, And then I realised there was another slight issue that I found what I was doing was if I said to him, you should see this website, I would go to my browser and I grab the little fav icon and drag and drop that to the black hole. And it would literally send a shortcut to the website to Mike. So I wanted to have live transfer from a browser as well. So those were my requirements. And then I set about trying to find a solution that would address each and every one of them. So stage one, the offline access part of it. As I said previously, Drop Copy Pro, fabulous, but it needed the remote machine to be turned on. Otherwise, the entire system fell over. So if I was going to have to redesign the system from the bottom up, figured I might as well aim for perfect. So I needed an independent location to save the files to. And I came up with using the Airport Extreme with an attached pen drive. So I popped a pen drive, 32 gig, in the back of the Airport Extreme. Now, why not a larger capacity? Why not go for mains powered? I didn't need that much storage. 32 gig is plenty. How long we had this in place now? Over 12 months, isn't it? I don't think I've ever deleted anything off it. So it gives us a history as well. I know you delete stuff, but I tend not to bother. I tidy mine up. Oh, no, I don't. I I call that, um, well, not even an archive, is it? It's um, an audit trail. That's got me away from not Digital hoarding. That as well. Um, So I didn't think we needed more storage than that. And it also makes the solution portable because you can literally just unplug the pen drive and take it with you. So on this pen drive, there's one folder that is... I, I call this solution the black hole because it's replacing Drop Copy Pro, which had the black hole icon. So within this black hole folder, there are two folders, one for Mike, one for me. And then um, I have it set. So whenever my machine boots, it automatically connects to this pen drive. And I set yours up to do that as well. You probably just think it's magic, don't you? It is magic. Yes, it just works. Right. So I, I set it up to do that. So stage one. Got the storage, automatically mounts when the machine boots. That meant stage two. Stage two was using DropZone. So DropZone is a small utility app from Aptonic. And what that gave me was the ability to drag and drop. So the old drag and drop mechanism that was on the black hole icon now works from the menu bar. So I can drag and drop any file or a link or anything like that um, to drop zone now drop zone works as an icon in the menu bar and um, I've only got two icons in the menu bar it's one of only two that are allowed so uh, that's in the menu bar and as I drag a file up to the icon it pops a menu out and from there very visual thing you know HUD type of look dark and icons on it and I hover over the icon that represents Mike's folder and I can just drop the file So that was working brilliantly. Almost there at that point, really. The extra bits are nice it is. But stage three, wanted it to be bi-directional. So as I said, I created two folders, an inbox for Mike and an inbox for me. Obviously, I need to drag and drop to Mike's inbox, but I need access to my own inbox. So I had to build that in somehow, which I'll talk about in a later step. So stage four, notifications. That proved a bit trickier because 
the solution here isn't a single app handling everything. But of course it's possible because I've got Hazel and Hazel does all sorts of things. So I made my inbox on my machine and Mike's inbox on his machine watched folders and I attached the action to that of show a growl notification. So this growl notification is actually customised on my machine to say Mike has sent you a file. It's actually really strange, you know, when I find myself putting a file in my own inbox because I get the message Mike sent you a file and I think, oh, has he? And then realise that, no, it's me. But I'm probably not even there. No, probably not. So um, that's what makes it spooky. So uh, Hazel links with Growl and that gives me notifications. The next step, stage five, remote access. And I thought about this because initially this was something we didn't have, but I thought it would be nice. And you've got a couple of options for that. Uh, Pogo plug would do it. So we've talked about Pogo plug before. And another way to do it would be to have something like copy or Dropbox on a server and synchronise the contents of your inbox via an app like that and then have that syncing to the cloud. So have a kind of utility account in Dropbox. And then, in so not my Dropbox, because that would put it on my desktop and then we'd all get in a right mess. But what you could do with that utility account in Dropbox is share the folder. And then you would have access to it and you could choose whether you wanted to sync it or not. So those were the, the options for remote access. Then I came up with a bit of a problem. This was a problem I didn't have with the original solution, which was Drop Copy Pro. When I tried to drag and drop a link from a browser straight up to Drop Zone, it wasn't having it. It kind of twanged back and I knew it hadn't sent it. And it seemed to be a problem. It just wouldn't do it from a browser. It will send an image from a browser. So if I've got Chrome sat there and there's a picture, I can drag that image up to Drop Zone and drop it and it will send the image. It just will not do that with the link. So I thought, is that a showstopper? And I found what I was doing was dragging and dropping the shortcut onto my desktop and then dragging it from the desktop over to Drop Zone came up with an alternative for that that's a little bit tidier, which is I'm using Drop Shelf as an intermediate. So I use it as an intermediate drop location. Drop Shelf gives you, you may have heard of Yoink. Drop Shelf is similar to Yoink. What it both of them do is give you a location. It uh, pops out like a shelf in both of them and you can drag and drop items to that shelf. Then when you drag the item off that shelf, the shelf disappears and the item gets sent through to Mike. So that was my way of providing what I call a live transfer of a link from a browser, because that's something that we do quite a bit. And uh, that solved the problem. The reason I didn't stick with just dragging and dropping it to the desktop was sometimes I can't see my desktop. I've got I'm either full screen or I've got too many windows open and then I drag and drop it. It's also that other problem. You remember where it was putting icons wherever it felt like? Mm, so yeah. sometimes I drag and drop it to the second monitor and it twangs back to the first monitor. So drop shelf or yoink solves that problem. So that was uh, that was an important one for me, but I guess you could miss that step if you never send links. Uh, then I needed to be able to access the inbox, both my inbox and Mike's inbox. I actually very seldom access Mike's inbox. If I've sent something and it's not right and I cre- you know, recreate the file, then I just send it again and that will overwrite it. So I don't really have to go in and tidy it up. You're doing that, aren't you? I am. Odd boy. Yes. So um, 
I don't have to access it for that reason, but every now and then it would be nice to have that capability and, and it'd be easy. So the first way to do it would be to, to use the icon that I've put in Drop Zone. So up to the menu, click Drop Zone and the menu pops out and the icon that's there that says, you know, center mic. If I just click on that, it will open up that location in Finder so I can really easily get to it using the mechanism I've already put in place. I needed that kind of access to my inbox then. And I can do that via drop zone if I add my own inbox to drop zone. I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to end up where I go up to drop zone, click it and find I've got 15 icons because there's just too many and it would then distract you from using it. So you do that, don't you? You've got both inboxes coming from drop zone. Yeah, that's right. But I don't, I only have yours. So what I decided to do was I did it via Alfred. So I've got a shortcut in Alfred that just opens a finder window and points to my inbox from this black hole system. And that works great. Uh, you could also have that working with shortcuts or you could just go directly via the file system. So that was stage seven. That was accessing this inbox that you've built. Uh, and then came the niceties, which really are just niceties. Um, one trick is to sort the folder by date and have the newest at the top and then unless Mike sent me an old file but that doesn't happen that often when you send me a file and I open my inbox it's very very infrequently is it an old file because by definition the files we're trying to send to each other are things we want each other to check so by sorting it by date and having the newest at the top they're instantly in front of your face um the system that I put in place would actually extend to additional team members. If you, if you wanted to work with additional team members, it would be easy to add somebody to that. You would just have to add an icon to Drop Zone, which wouldn't slow you down as much as Drop Copy Pro used to do. Um, you could also extend what happens when a file arrives in your inbox with Hazel. So I've just got it giving me a notification. But if you wanted it to make a copy and send that to, to a backup or somewhere like that, then you could set that up. In fact, if you were working mobile, so say I was working downstairs and Mike was dragging and dropping things to this inbox and I wasn't at the machine that is set up like this, then I could very easily do that. I could extend the whole system with Hazel and just say, if something comes into that folder, send it on to me or give me a notification on this machine. So Hazel really allows you to extend the whole thing. And of course, it's got Apple Script support. So literally anything you wanted to do with it, you could do. So it sounds complicated, but it's not actually that complicated. So step one was offline access. So the benefit for us now is Mike's machine doesn't have to be on. It can, you can turn that off and the pen drive, which is on the airport extreme, is just sitting there doing it. When he turns his machine on, you can go to that folder and everything that I've dragged and dropped during the day is there for him. So that was stage one offline access. And that is better than what we had. That was the main reason I think we didn't go back to Drop Copy Pro when it started to work, wasn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. Because I'd already sorted all that out and that was a huge benefit. Stage two was using Drop Zone. Drop Zone is the glue that holds all of this together. Stage three was creating two inboxes, so it can be used bi-directionally. Stage four was adding the notifications. Five was providing remote access, so you can literally just pull the pen drive and go with you or synchronise it with a service. Stage six was the live transfer, so that was using Dropshelf or Yoink. 
Seven was accessing it, so either directly via drop zone or via Alfred and a shortcut. And then stage eight was the niceties, just sorting it and prettying it somehow if you wanted to have it icons or whatever. Uh, so really that sort of sort of suiting yourself. I, I, do you have your sorted? Did I insist you did? Probably. I do have it. <laughs> yeah, I do have it sorted. I, I set it up, so I probably just left it like that. So for those that asked, that was um, the system we used to have. Uh, what you've just heard now is the system that replaced it. And I'm much happier with that system. I must admit, I did wonder, you know, when you've set something up and it just works and it's fabulous mm. and then you get a new machine and you can't for the life of me remember what you've done. I'm sure it'll be in your setup sheet. Uh, if I documented it. But you know how you don't document it until you're sure it's working? Well, not at all in my case. Well, that is how you work. Yes. I must admit, I hadn't actually documented all of that, but it was on my list of, you know, I promised I'd talk about this and I thought, right, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to actually document it and do it. It took less than about five minutes to set it back up on the new machine. It really wasn't that tricky at all. So I will write that up as promised at some point. Been a little bit busy recording MacBytes lately. But on to something else that I broke. This one was not my fault either, you know. Having said I broke it, it wasn't my fault. It was Google's fault this time. Uh, yes, uh, what I found was I use uh, Google Chrome and um, I have a lot of GoToMeeting sessions. don't actually like GoToMeeting, you know. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? It is. It's not the best conferencing system, put it like that. But no. I've got a lot of sessions that I have to attend in GoToMeeting. And what was happening was I accessed them via Fantastical from the menu bar and I put the link in each appointment. So what I want to do is just go click on the link and it should crank up a browser, go to GoToMeeting. I should just be taken into it. It should be simple. What was happening was it was opening up Chrome and then nothing else was happening. It was sitting there with a blank page. Uh, first, I thought it was, you know, an, an internet blip. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a blip in just this meeting. But no, what the, pro what the problem was, Google Chrome just went mad with GoToMeeting and just wouldn't access it at all. So what I then did was copy the URL from Chrome, open up Safari, paste it in. That worked fine every time. So I could just have made Safari the default browser because what seemed to have broken was Google Chrome. But this is why that wouldn't work. I needed Google Chrome for Connect Meetings because I don't have Flash installed. So um, if I and I did do this, actually, I did change it to Safari, made Safari the default because there were more go to meeting meetings than Connect Meetings. And then when I did have a Connect Meeting, and you know, you know, like it doesn't register in your brain. You're looking at the link and it clearly says Adobe Connect mm. and you click it anyway and it opens in Safari and then says I need Flash and you go cold. So. That wasn't going to work. Um, I also had similar requirements if I was using a site-specific browser. So if I'd got a link and I needed to go to like a Centra, Sabre Centra, isn't it, meeting, then I'd want to go to a specific browser. So uh, I'd created SSBs in Fluid for some of those services. And then I remembered an app that I used to use quite a while ago, which was called Highbrow. I'm sure we talked about this, don't you remember? Yeah, I do remember that one, a blast from the past. Yes, it was, and it hasn't been updated probably since the last time we installed it. Uh, what Highbrow gives you is a menu item. And initially, when you install it, it lists all your installed browsers. In fact, it listed some stuff that I wouldn't consider to be a browser. For instance, it had Evernote listed. 
So um, you can remove either browsers or stuff that you don't consider to be browsers, but it's a bit of a tedious process. Luckily, it's only a one-off process. So when you've tidied it up, you end up with an icon. The icon in the menu bar is quite clever, actually. It changes depending on what your default browser is. And as the menu appears and say you've got Chrome set as your default, when you then click on Safari to make that your default, that icon changes. So you've got an instant indication of which is set to be your current browser, your default browser. And that's really all I use it for, just to switch between them. And I found that that is such a time saver. Now, there was another app at the time when I was looking at Highbrow and I can't remember why I went highbrow and I didn't go with this other one, which is called Choosy, but it's very similar in concept. That one will prompt you for a browser. Now, I think highbrow does that, but I don't really want to be prompted every time I click a link. I just want to have a very quick way of going in and changing the default browser. And the fact that the icon shows me what my default browser is gives me an indication in just the right place because that icon is right next to Fantastical, which is where I'm going to get the link that I need to click. So instantly I know if it's right or not. So um, that's what works for me. But Choosy, as I say, is very similar. And that I think has more features. I'm sure I remember reading at the time that you could um, filter traffic. So, you know, if I click and it's going to Google, go to this browser. So I don't have Choosy. You didn't get it, did you? No. Highly unlikely you'd get, if you had it, I probably have it. No, so um, Choosy was something that I decided because of this problem that I would go back and look at. And that was when I realised both of them were incredibly dated. What's the latest version? Have a look at the Mac update. But both of them are very dated. And I wondered why. Why no updates to them? I know they're both still working, but I think there's probably features that they could add to them. And um, there's also that aspect of, just the fact, you know, you just don't want to install something that old. You're scared to death that something will break and the whole thing will fall over. I wondered if it was because they considered that Google had cornered the browser market. Choosy's 1.0.3. Yeah, but what's the date of it? What, what date of the last update? Mac update has a date. 30th in the... of June 2010. I thought it was 2010. And the other that's, one was that's old. <laughs> Mm. I think Highbrow might be a little bit younger than that, but around 2010, 2011, I'm sure. 2012. Oh, 2012. November 2012. Bit of an update. So Highbrow's the, the youngest, but I think it's a shame that they both look... Would you, would you go as far as to say abandonware? Yes. They are both still for sale, but uh, I'd be concerned about the future of them, seeing as though they've had no update at all, I mean, in over four years. There must be something they can add to it. I can always find things to add to software, can't I? Yes. But both of them are very handy in situations that, like I faced, I didn't break it, it broke itself, um, where you can hack together a fix of sorts. So um, I'd actually, I did always have Highbrow installed. Mind you, I did have about 20 browsers, didn't I? That would be why. But as I've um, as browsers have dropped off the edge for me, because uh, we said, didn't we, Shearer? And oh, there was all sorts that died. I've ended up with maybe three or four browsers and I don't didn't really have the need to switch between them to any great extent anymore. So it, it had become not an essential for me. So I'd all but forgotten it until I actually had a need for it. And it does work fantastically well for situations like that, where something just will not open in a specific browser. Didn't you have a problem with something in Google Chrome not long ago? Did I? Can't remember. Can't for the life of me remember no. what it was, but uh, there, there was an issue where you needed to open it in another browser. And uh, it's a good solution for that. 
Now, tell us what you broke. Yes, I broke something. Um, I was recently creating a video for work, but I was doing it at home. Uh, better equipment, all that kind of thing. Better company. <clears throat> Carry on. And this particular video was actually a PowerPoint presentation, which I was narrating. Now, you can have narration added to a PowerPoint file, but you, you ultimately end up with a PowerPoint file. Um, this was going to be hosted on the company's video hosting service, which requires a 1280x720HD MP4. So what I did is recorded the audio separately, saved that as an MP3, and then I copied the MP3 file to my phone. Now, the plan was to run the PowerPoint slideshow in full screen on my Mac, manually move through the slides and use ScreenFlow to capture the screen. So I was recording the slideshow um, being played back. Then I would add the MP3 to the ScreenFlow file as an audio track and generate the MP4. So it seems so simple. Nice. Why were you copying it to the phone? Why was I copying it to the phone? Um, if it was already on the desktop and you were going to add it to ScreenFlow, why did the phone come into it? Because I needed to know when to move on to the next slide. So what I did was I copied the MP3 to Goodreader on the iPhone and then I pressed play to listen to the audio and I would then know when to move on to the next slide. Ah, right. Because I'd done this before, but I was doing this one on my own Mac, but when I'd done it before, I'd done it in the studio and I had it on my phone for some reason. I can't remember. Anyway, that was the word. You're losing this now. Right. Oh, I am losing it. Now, although I was listening to the audio, it was still difficult to know when to move on to the next slide. What I really needed was the notes, which were in Evernote. So my plan B was to open Evernote on the Mac, open the note containing the narration, listen to the audio whilst looking at the notes. because And juggling a chicken? Yes. Uh, no, that would have been too much for me. Um <laughs> Now, the notes were split into sections. In Evernote, the notes were split into sections. What I did was I put a horizontal line indicating the text that was associated with each slide. And this way, I'd be able to move on to the next slide at the appropriate time. So, you know, you can imagine what I'm doing. I'm listening to the audio. I'm reading the, audio, I'm reading the uh, words that I, had, I was speaking so that I could keep a track of when to move on to the next slide. And you were moving the slides on. And I was moving the slides as well, yeah. Now, the problem was that when I ran the slideshow, I ran it on the main monitor on my Mac, and my external monitor displayed the presenter view, which I didn't need. Now, for those of you who haven't used the presenter view, and you, you probably know what the presenter view is because you've talked about it many, many times, it is a screen that contains your speaker's notes if you've written them up in PowerPoint as opposed to writing them up in something else like I did. Um, and there was a reason I wrote them up in Evernote. Um, and that was so that I could um, go into our studio and actually have them on my iPad and read them out um, because I didn't want to have them in PowerPoint. But under normal circumstances, you have your speaker's notes, you have a thumbnail of the current slide and you have thumbnails of the upcoming slides and a timer. So you know how much time has gone on the presentation. And that's what they call presenter view. And it is displayed on a second monitor. That is one of the big limitations of, of any presentation software, that you can put your speaker's notes in and 
if you're using PresenterView, fabulous. But it's the devil's own job to get them out of PresenterView into anything else. It is. And you know how I did it? Go on. Copy and paste. Oh, lovely. You can print out speaker's notes, but you end up with little thumbnails of the slides and, and little um, notes things, don't you, on, on a, a handout? Yeah, the, I, I actually did it that way as well. Um, I'm just thinking how I did it. Yeah, you can. I don't know if you can do it in the Mac version, but certainly in the Windows version, you can export to Word. What um, I actually did want to export to was Omni Outliner. Yeah. I just wanted to put the speaker's notes in my presentation. Then I know that they're in there. But if I'm doing a job like you're doing, then I, I want them somewhere else. And I just wanted to extract the text. No. You wouldn't think it was rocket science. But unfortunately, it is. And the other thing is that often these presentations that I build are then being used by the other trainers to deliver the courses. So we have to have the speaker's notes in there, if not for me, for other people. Yeah, so on the Mac version of PowerPoint, you either have presenter view or mirror view where the slideshow will appear on both slides. So on the ribbon, on the toolbar, you can either click presenter view and then you get um, the presenter view on one screen and the actual slideshow on the other. Um, or you have mirror view, which is where you see the same thing on both, both screens. On Windows, however, there's a checkbox which simply says use presenter view. And if you tick, one screen displays the slideshow and the other displays the presenter view, just like the Mac. But if it's not ticked, one screen displays the slideshow and the other isn't used by PowerPoint at all, but it is available. So unlike um, where it was, was it Mountain Lion that, were, that introduced the full screen and then the other screen was totally useless? Wasn't it Lion? Was it Lion? I think it was Lion. Yeah. But if you use the Windows version of PowerPoint and you tick the box, you don't tick the box that says um, use, use presenter view, then your second screen is actually available to do anything you like with. So at work, if I'm delivering a virtual course and I have a presentation, I usually run it this way. I don't need the notes as I'm familiar with the presentation. So if my laptop's connected to a second monitor, which it usually is, I have other stuff on there. So I have the WebEx chat panel so I can keep my eye on the uh, the questions. Uh, I might have my email running. Um, I might have link running. Um, and maybe I've got another window ready to pull across after the presentation's finished. Maybe I'm running an Excel course, so I've got an Excel screen up and I can just drag that onto the main monitor, which is the one that's being shared in the WebEx. This is beginning to sound like one of my major, major bones of contention with a presentation software. I use it in a webinar, let me see my screen. Yes. But your requirement was slightly different. It was. Now, as it happened on this occasion, I realised that this actually wasn't the best way to work anyway, because what I'd be trying to do was scroll down the notes in Evernote on the desktop and because they were longer than one screen's worth. And at the same time, I'd have to click on my other screen to move to the next slide. And knowing me, I get confused and I scroll the wrong window, I'll put my mouse on the wrong screen. And of course, you know, I, I was recording with ScreenFlow the uh, slideshow moving from slide to side and you know, I just get totally confused. Don't we make it look professional when you think what's actually going on? Yes. Um, <laughs> the so, finished product looks so fabulous. You should see the pad the paddling that goes on. Yeah. In the end, what I did was I actually used Evernote on the iPad to keep my eye on the notes. I ran the presentation in mirror mode uh, because you know it, it didn't actually matter which mode I used, but I chose mirror mode because that way I wouldn't be distracted by the presenter view on the second monitor. Although I suppose I could have just turned the second monitor off.
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading the notes on the iPad. I'm listening uh, to what I'd already recorded and I'm moving the uh, the slideshow on. And it all. You know it, what's on the MacBiter's minds at this point? What? Why didn't you just do it live? Why didn't you just Why didn't you just move the slides on and do the walk and talk at the same time? Because because it's not like you not to. Because I'd already recorded the audio for something else. Ah, and the audio was yeah. fabulous. Just needed the images yeah, to go with it. I was it. Um, I was reusing the audio. I find it very difficult to have something recorded audio wise, and then try and put the video to it, and vice versa. And yet I've heard so many people who say I cannot walk and talk at the same time. Can't do it. I, I, you know, they'll say to me, I've got to sit there and do the audio perfectly. And then I've got to go away and do the video. And then I've got to go away and make sure that the two marry up. And my first thought is, why don't you just walk and talk at the same time? But they can't do it. You have more trouble piecing it together. I I can do it. It was just, I wanted to reuse the audio. I'd already recorded the audio. I was reusing it for something else. The question still remains of how to turn off presenter view and have the second monitor available. It can't actually be done in PowerPoint 2011. However, it can be done because we, we, well, you came up with the the suggestion to check. It can be done in LibreOffice via the Impress um, app or the Impress settings. Impress is the equivalent of PowerPoint in LibreOffice. It's the presentation uh, tool. If you actually go into the preferences, go to Impress, go to General, um, there is a tick box in the presenters console section which says enable presenter console and you just take the tick out of that box and that then gives you your second monitor back that i think is how all of them should work or they should have that extra option of okay you don't want it mirrored what do you want me to do with a second screen in fact they could just leave it that couldn't they so you know I can access two screens here. What would you like me to do with a second screen? Either mirror the slides to it, use it as presenter view, turn it off completely or or totally ignore it. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Like I said, these things are not programmed by somebody who delivers presentations because that is so basic. And um, how I knew about LibreOffice, I had needed that in a webinar. I cannot control a webinar if I can't see the screen. And I can't have the webinar running on a different machine because I'm sharing the screen of this machine. So it's all got to happen on one machine, however I do that, which is why when you see my desk in a presentation, it is piled high with kit. So um, I'd created what we would call lobby slides, which are slides that you play before you actually start talking. And they're just like talking wallpaper, aren't they? Mm. So you might be advertising something that's coming up or giving them tips and tricks, something like that. And you just have it there. And um, there are other ways to do it. Of course, you could upload it as a PDF and all that kind of thing. But sometimes you just need an editable copy locally because you might be adding something to that live. I mean, I've done that. I'm sure you've done that, where you have your lobby slides and you're changing them with two minutes to go. Yeah. You don't have chance to create a PDF, check the PDF, upload the PDF, get the PDF in the window. You just don't. You need to do it live. And um, that's where I'd found, I think at the time I was using OpenOffice and then I moved to LibreOffice. But it is quite hidden, isn't it, as, a, as an option? It's, it's not on the toolbar. I couldn't remember where it was for the life of me. Or if there, if there was an option at all. Yeah. yeah, so enable presenter console, and if you take the tick out, you get your monitor back. There is, however, another way, as you reminded me. 
yeah, the, the other way isn't quite as intuitive as that, I don't think. Well, given where the option is, that's not intuitive either, is it? It's just a different way of doing it. And that is to do your presentation. So in your case, you wanted slides on the screen that you were moving through and recording. So that was the requirement. You could do that by saving the slides as a PDF, which you can do from PowerPoint on Windows and Mac, and you can do from Keynote. So once you've got your power, your presentation in PDF format, I would always do that anyway. I would say it's good practice to create a PDF anytime you create a Keynote file or a PowerPoint file, because once you've got your file down the line, you're going to go back and refer to that. And the first thing that you will notice that will break is fonts. So my Mac, my old Mac, which is sat on the desk waiting to be repaired, has got all the fonts I need on it. And my new one, every time I open a keynote file, it says this font's missing, this font's missing, add this font, got font problems, and I've got to go away and add those fonts to it. So you know, can you imagine what would happen three years down the line when I can't find the font file either? Whereas if you create a PDF, the whole thing is all locked up neatly in a PDF and you've got complete fidelity to the original. So it's fantastic for archiving. Um, and the, the app that I use to present a PDF, now it's not just a case of opening that PDF, because if you open the PDF, you've got all the Chrome of, of the PDF app. The app I use for that is Hyper PDF, but there is, of course, Preview and Preview's built in, and why would you go and buy another app? So I thought, I'll give this a go in Preview and see if you can actually do it. Well, there's default full screen options. So you would think to yourself, wouldn't you? I've got this PDF. It goes right to the edge of the document. I'll just go into full screen mode. Tell me, that's what you would have tried, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. Full screen view is not full screen view for the actual document. It's full screen view for the application. So what you get is your slide on the screen with a tiny gap all the way around the edge, maybe a quarter of an inch all the way around the edge. So it looks as though it's got like a face, it looks like that, you know, the cottony background, the grey thing. Yeah. And it looks like it's raised slightly with a slight drop shadow on it. The other thing that is worse than that is that there is a faded kind of popover in the middle of the slide at the bottom of the screen where it says page X of Y. So, you know, two of 20. And that stays there. And I thought, that's ridiculous. It ruins the effect completely. Now, you do have an alternative. So that is the default full screen view. But if you instead go to view slideshow, then it loses the, the actual chrome. So the very tiny chrome around the edge, that disappears. And your slide is then full screen, which is theoretically what you want. It's true full screen for documents. But... Now, instead of the faded popover with page X of Y on it, you've now got full transport controls that you can't get rid of. So transport controls, you know, forward, back, that kind of thing. You can control this fantastically with a mouse. You can use it with gestures on the mouse and gestures on the trackpad. So to be honest, I don't think you really need these transport controls. And there was a cross and I thought, well, maybe I can just click that and get rid of them. No, that takes you out of uh, slideshow view. So although preview can do it after a fashion, that wouldn't have worked for you because you need the slides, don't you? Yeah. With nothing else in the way. Um, I don't rely on preview because Apple makes subtle changes to preview and that can break 
specific workflows like that. So that's why I, I got an extra app. And this Hyper PDF, I think it was around the $10 mark, which is about $6.99. It has three different modes to it. It has a standard editing mode where you can get to thumbnails, bookmarks, all that kind of thing. You can annotate your PDFs. It has a reading mode and that looks like a book and literally the pages turn like a book. But the third mode is the key. It is a presenting mode, a dedicated presenting mode. And that takes away all of the Chrome, makes the slides full screen. It will also present documents, so it doesn't even have to be a keynote file. It will do that with a pages file or a Word file, whatever you need to, to present on screen it will do and uh, I think it will even do a dual page view if you need it because obviously if it's an A4 thing it looks lost in the middle of the screen so you can do a dual page with it as well. Just before we recorded I thought I'll get the price for that and um, it's missing in action at the store tonight so I got it from the Mac App Store although I think you can buy it direct from the developer I got it on offer in the App Store. Don't know why it's missing in action because I only installed it about a week ago. Uh, it is one of the things that I would install on a new Mac straight away. So I'm assuming it will be back shortly. Um, as soon as I explain that to people, I get one question, don't I, all the time. But what about my transitions and my animations? But of course, you wouldn't use transitions and animations, would you? I wouldn't. No, no, neither do I. Never do. Never, never, never do. Because of situations like this. I need to be able to know that if I'm presenting in Keynote because I've got my notes in Keynote and for whatever the reason I can't, that I can just pick up a PDF and present from that. And if I've got transitions and animations in my Keynote, then I'm going to be used to that timing of it and I'm not, I'm going to feel lost with my PDF. So I keep things very, very simple. That's one reason. Another reason is how many times do you go to a presentation and you hear or you hear yourself saying, will we get copies of the slides? Well, obviously, if you give copies of the slides, do you remember that handout that we got given by somebody who did a presentation many years ago and um, got this slide and this slide had so much animation on it. It literally, it went into self-play mode for about 10 minutes, didn't it? I remember that. It one. was a spam presentation and all these things came in and you know, it's a nice effect while you're sat watching it and the person could, could wander around and talk to you while the animation happened. So he wasn't sitting there clicking on. The printout, you, you couldn't read it. All what, what the printout looks like when you've got that, what the PDF would look like, is every element that has faded in and then faded out is on the slide, solid colour. You couldn't see the slide for text boxes upon text boxes upon text boxes. So I just find it easier. No transitions, no animations. And it gives me something I can present from my presentation application. I can present from PDF. I can give to the attendees. I can post onto SlideShare and it works across the board. So um, that's my take on it. But if you have transitions and animations, you can present a PDF with those transitions and animations if you use Adobe Reader. Obviously, I've just said a dirty word, Adobe. But Adobe Reader does support um, particularly PowerPoint presentations. It supports animations and transitions, but also Keynote, depending on the transition. So if you need transitions and animations, then go for Adobe Reader. So yes, yeah, so my specific requirements broke it, really. Um, but LibreOffice fixed it. So all well and good in the end. Oh, we like a happy ending, don't we? Yeah. Talking of which, time for feedback and comments. Hot off the press, this one, just as we're recording this final MacBite 7 show. 
Shall I say who it's from? Or should Go I just on. start reading it? No, they need to know, don't they? Yes. We've had a missive from Minster. He said, um, in fact, the title of that was uh, Seven Days of MacBytes Awesomeness, I think. I think it was. He says, hi all at Mark Bites HQ. I never thought it would happen. Yes, I know Elaine said seven days of Mark Bites when we got a new iWorks, but there was no time scale set for this magical week. Well, my inbox has been struck by a bolt of lightning, or was it a set of false teeth? They'll be yours, won't they? Mm. Last week when it finally happened, an email stating that a new episode of MacBytes was ready to download. And like London buses, there were going to be six right behind it. You could have knocked me down with a tube of Dentifix. There's an image. Hmm. <laughs> Well, after five episodes and a lot of hazardous miles on my bike listening to them, dodging cars, potholes and a certain person's failing teeth, I can safely say the past few months without any new episodes from MacBytes headquarters is all forgotten. It's great to have you guys back behind the microphone and recording. Here's to next week. Or how about MapBytes Weekly if we get a new Apple TV release this year? MapBytes Weekly, now that sounds great. It has a nice weekly ring to it. Maybe we could put it to a public vote. I don't think we dare try that, do you? No. Because you seem to like this everyday business. Could be killing us, but you seem to like it. Um, so anyway, he says all the best and keep them coming. Regards, Minster. And then he did that thing that throws me and put Gordon in brackets <laughs> after it. Good job. He did. You know what he usually does? He puts regards Gordon and then puts Minster in brackets. <laughs> right way round there. So thank you very much for that, Minster. Always good to hear from you. He's also set us somewhat of a challenge regarding his Apple TV. Something for a future show there. He has. Um, guaranteeing a future show, of course. Indeed. Shrewd move, Minster. He's hoping he has a safe journey with the last of the MacBite 7 shows. Because that's it. That is it for this episode of MacBytes. It is it for the MacBytes 7 special series. But I promise, I'm doing it again, aren't I? That promise word. I promise there will be another episode of MacBytes. Dare I use the next week hashtag, do you think? That's not what I was going to tell people, was it? Wasn't it? No. What was that? <laughs> what date is it? Oh, yes. You were going to be very naughty. Do you fill them in? Because I said <laughs> no. I wouldn't let you torment them so. I was going to, to say we should end with dun, 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 Right, dun, right, we get dun, the idea And tell people that this was the last ever episode of Matt Bites Ever But I said that would just be plain cruel so And then reveal it was an April Fool Ignore him, ignore him, <laughs> Minster, calm down He's caught his bike now, you know No, there will be another episode of Matt Bites I'm going to say next week there, I've said it. There you go, Minster, I've said it. So as ever, we would love to hear from you and we have heard from so many of you. It's fantastic. We can barely keep up. We love it. So uh, please send your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. You can use the contact form on the website or send us an audio file. That might be a bit risky, Minster, making an audio file on his bike. Mm. But you should. You should definitely send us an audio file. You can leave a comment on the show notes at macbytes.co.uk and uh, keep sending us your Mac Love Bites. They will be back very, very soon. Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook and circle us on Google+. Sign up for the newsletter at macbytes.co.uk. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes and you can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. 
And me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. Oh, very well done. Thank Great you. for the last episode. And you can follow the true star of the show at twitter.com slash series. So until next time, this has been Elena Mike, bringing you MacBytes and MacBytes 7. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What a nice touch. A fireworks display to celebrate MacBytes 7. A what? No, that's the sound of the explosives I needed to use when I lost the keys to the studio. I hope you only blew the doors off.